Good morning, Woodland Hills. I did not put that dedication in there just as a sales pitch. <laughs> I really do appreciate you guys. I uh, do not take for granted uh, the blessing that I have being a pastor of this church. Um, it's rare to find a church that is most passionate about Scripture, uh, and yet isn't buttheadish about it. Buttheadish. There's a word for you. That's uh, open-minded. Um, and passionate about the essential things and uh, free with the non-essential things. I'm aware of the fact that um, I would be given the left hand of fellowship in many churches, maybe most churches. Uh, they, they, I know that because I, I, there's folks who, when they try to preach some of the ideas I preach here, they are booted out. So I appreciate you guys. I mean that from the depth of my heart. Uh, you're an incredible congregation. It's been a joy uh, to be your pastor for the last 25 years. All right. We are in this series, Turning the table, Tables. And um, what we're doing is looking at passages that many people appeal to, have been appealed to throughout history, uh, to try to argue that Jesus qualified his otherwise unqualified teaching about loving all people, including your enemies, and refraining from violence. And they appeal to these passages because they want to justify violence. So we're looking at these passages and, and uh, trying to show how they don't mean what these folks are trying to make them mean. So today we're going to look at two passages that have been used for this purpose. And i got a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in. The first has to do with this Roman centurion. A Roman centurion was a leader of a military unit, usually a couple thousand soldiers. Uh, and as such, he would have had to be a person who was prepared to engage in violence and command others to engage in violence when that was necessary. So there's this one time where this Roman centurion heard about Jesus' uh, healing ministry, and he had a beloved servant that was close to dying. And so he sent some of his servants out to talk to Jesus. And these servants are Jews, and so they come to Jesus and they say, um, you know, will, will you come to our, to our master's home and heal his beloved servant? Uh, this is a good guy. He loves the nation of Israel and he even helped us build a synagogue. You read about this in, in, in Luke 7. And that's pretty rare for a Roman centurion to help Jews for, to love the nation of Israel and, and, and to, to help them build a synagogue. You don't find that very often. Uh, but Jesus agrees with this. And so he's heading towards the centurion's house. And while he was still a long ways off, the centurion sees him. And so he sends out some friends and says, you don't have to bother coming to our house. In fact, we're not worthy to receive you. But if you just say the word, uh, my servant will be healed. And then Jesus says this, Luke 7, he goes, When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. That's an incredible statement that Jesus is making about a Roman centurion. The Romans at this point are, are oppressively ruling Israel. Jews, most Jews, despise the Romans. And more than just despising Roman soldiers, they would especially despise a captain of a military unit, as high-ranking as this Roman centurion. And yet Jesus praises this guy. And his servant was healed. But notice here, Jesus doesn't say, now, you have to step down from that post. Resign your position as a centurion. Jesus doesn't say that. And so a lot of folks argue that that, mean, that that just reveals that Jesus assumed that people would be serving in violent positions within the military. So he qualified his teaching about loving enemies and, and refraining from violence. You could all make the same argument uh, with, with Peter in Acts chapter 10. Uh, the Spirit leads Peter to the household of this guy named Cornelius, and he was another Roman centurion. 
And, and Peter starts preaching the gospel to these, these, this Gentile house. And the Spirit of God falls on them, and, and there's manifestations of the Spirit. They prophesy and speak in tongues. So Peter, bright guy that he was, he finally gets it. That, oh, God is showing no partiality. He must be wanting to include Gentiles in the kingdom. Even though Jesus had been telling him that throughout his ministry, Peter just now gets it. Shows you how thick uh, racist perceptions can run. You know, they're hard to root out. Uh, and so then when Peter sees that the Spirit falls on them, he's, he commands them to be baptized. But he doesn't tell Cornelius, now you've got to resign your position as a military captain uh, because the kingdom is against all violence. And so folks argue, well, look it. Peter also assumed that it was uh, appropriate for believers to serve in capacities in the military where they might have to engage in violence. Is that a good argument? Answer is, I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, this is an argument from silence, and take logic 101, you'll find that arguments from silence are the weakest kind of argument. You should never base a conclusion exclusively on what someone does not say. So arguments from silence are weak to start with, but in this case, it's particularly weak for several reasons. One is that we have Jesus on record stating clear and unambiguously his view about violence, and he doesn't qualify it. That we're to love all people, love our enemies, uh, bless those who persecute you, do good to those who despitefully use you, and so on and so on. Never retaliate. Uh, turn the other cheek. He, he's, he's very clear on that. And it really is bad exegesis and bad theology and bad everything else to take what Jesus does not say and use it to reinterpret what Jesus does say. All right? It's also wrong-headed for another reason, and that is this. Jesus never went around telling people what they need to change in their lives after he ministers to them. Think about it. Not one time does he heal a person or deliver them from demons and then say, okay, now here's what you got to clean up in your life. Never once does he do that. Not once. So he doesn't do it with anybody. It's hardly surprising that he doesn't do it with the Roman centurion. So it's really a bad argument to read a lot of stuff into his, his not confronting the Roman centurion when he, Jesus doesn't talk that way with, with, with anybody. And consider this. Jesus hung out with tells us in the Gospels that he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Uh, these are the two most judged groups in ancient Israel. Tax collectors would rip off their own people by, by charging more than they actually owed, and, and prostitutes were prostitutes. And so uh, they were really looked down on. And yet Jesus hung out with them. Now think about this. Do you think that they would have wanted to hang out with Jesus if Jesus was in the business of pointing out what, what was wrong in people's lives? Think about it. Hey, let's go over to hang out with Jesus because, uh, you know, he'll remind us what losers we are. He, Jesus clearly didn't condone their lifestyle, their behavior, their vocation, but there's not one word about him criticizing them. Uh, and if he had criticized them, they wouldn't have been wanting to hang out at parties with them. Uh, they would have steered clear of Jesus the same way, and for the same reason, they steered clear of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were into the pointing out what's wrong in a person's life, and so these folks steered clear of that. But with Jesus, they gravitated towards him. And, and that's because he met people where they were at. He loved people where they were at. And um, he wasn't ashamed of being called their friend. Uh, even though it was a scandal, all oh, those Pharisees and other religious leaders, they were just scandalized. You know, birds of a feather flock together. Look at Jesus hanging out with, with, with uh, those tax collectors and prostitutes and not even criticizing them. He's condoning it and all, so on and went. But Jesus always put love as a higher priority than appearances or reputation. And so, so he just wasn't in the business of giving people a checklist. Now, I'm sure if, if, if these people became uh, devoted followers of Jesus, um, things would begin to change in their life. 
Um, like Mary Magdalene, there's indications that she was a prostitute, but it's clear when she's following Jesus, uh, she wasn't doing that anymore. But it wasn't because Jesus gave her a checklist that she had to check off before she started following him. It's just that when you, when you start to encounter the living God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, it changes you, doesn't it? It changes you. Uh, you, you begin to want things you didn't used to want, and you, and, and you stop wanting things you used to want. And, and, and your life just begins to change. God meets us where we're at and loves us into transformation. Uh, and, and it's an organic process. And it's an organic process that you've got to have a lot of wisdom and a lot of commitment to a person and a lot of love for a person to begin to know how and if and when God might be working in their life to change some things. Your lives are, what Jesus knows and what we need to know is that lives are, are complex, delicate things. And, and you've got to be on the inside of that to begin to have some discernment to help a person begin to get free of stuff they need to get free of. God doesn't work at every, at, on everything at the same time, does he? Uh, he accommodates some things while he works on this, and then he works on this, and we're all in the process of being transformed. But you can't just bulldoze into a life that you know nothing about and say, okay, here's what you need to change. It doesn't work like that. That's why we here at Wilderness Church have this slogan that we repeat with some frequency, and it's so important, and that is that if, if, you, if someone hasn't invited you in on their life to help discern what God maybe wants to work on, if they haven't invited you in on that life, you're only allowed one opinion about them, and that is that they are worth Jesus Christ dying for, uh, that they have unsurpassable worth. And every thought we think about them, all of our attitudes towards them, the words that we speak and the behaviors we engage in towards them, all have to reflect our agreement with God that that person has unsurpassable worth. Regardless of what you see or think you see, agree with or disagree with, uh, you know, whatever your opinion may be, you set that aside as completely irrelevant because it's none of your business. You disagree with God about that person and bless them. And see, this is why Jesus wasn't in the business of just bulldozing into a life and, and giving him a checklist. In the kingdom, they, they, you preach the gospel, you minister to them, you meet the need, and you entrust them to the Holy Spirit and to the community, and they are loved into transformation. And so this, this uh, passage, I submit to you, does not at all constitute an example of Jesus qualifying his uh, otherwise unqualified teachings on loving all people, including enemies, and refraining from violence. Here's the second episode we're going to look at. And this one's a little more tricky. The first one was pretty easy. This one... This is actually one of the strangest passages, and maybe the strangest passage uh, in Jesus' whole ministry. Uh, it doesn't really illustrate, it's, it's not an example of, of a passage that people appeal to to justify violence. But it is a passage where Jesus looks unloving, and interestingly enough, it's a passage that some racist who profess to be Christian appeal to in order to justify their racism. It comes out of Matthew chapter 15. Uh, listen to this. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. Totally ignored her. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. 
Just called her a dog. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Just like he said to the Roman centurion, Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Okay, let's think about this. I uh, really believe it's important when we're dealing with Scripture to be ruthlessly honest with what we see. Uh, and, and admit it, even if we don't have an answer for it. Uh, just say it what it is. Be honest. And the honest truth is that Jesus looks like a racist here. Does he not? If you call an entire group of people dogs because of the race, you are a racist. If, if someone quotes me out of context on this, I'm going to be in deep trouble. Because <laughs> there's more coming, I, I assure you this. But hey, hey, let's admit it. He looks like a racist here. Oh, and see, I found that if you're honest with Scripture, that's where, and, and wrestle with it, that's where some of, the, you, you, some of the most profound truths are to be, to be found. But if we just pretend like we don't notice ugly stuff in the Bible, uh, well, we, we miss that opportunity. And uh, it jades our, our whole way of measuring what is beautiful when what's ugly, what's true, and what's false because we keep telling ourselves things that aren't true. So, so look, at, if you're convinced as I am that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was sinless, then he can't be capable of racism because racism is a sin. Uh, and so what this means is that if Jesus looks racist, we've got to dig deeper. So we're going to dig deep here. Uh, it's going to require some... Stick to itness on your part. Some put your thinking caps on, uh, but uh, I, I I can promise you it's going to be worth it. So hang with me on this. Okay, let's slow down. Take it step by step. Jesus goes to the city of uh, cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now these cities, um, in contrast to say Jerusalem, they were heavily populated by Gentiles. It was pri primarily a Gentile population, and most of them were descendants of the Canaanites. Though they were called Phoenicians at this time. So if Jesus is going to go to Tyre and Sidon, he knows he's going to bump into Canaanites. So this isn't just a random occurrence that happened. Uh, something intentional is going on here. Okay, so locked in. Something intentional is going on here. So, not surprisingly, he bumps into a Canaanite woman. And the woman um, uh, is, is desperate. Her daughter is demonized. And so she cries out to Jesus, you know, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what you need to know is that um, there was bad blood between the, the Jews and the Canaanites. The Jews looked down on the Canaanites. They considered them dogs, subhuman. And the Canaanites despised the Jews because, as you may recall, about a thousand some years earlier, the Jews invaded their land and slaughtered multitudes of other people and enslaved the rest. And that, that action in the past caused a deep racial wound that was still festering a thousand years later when Jesus encounters this Canaanite woman. Racial wounds don't heal quickly and sometimes they don't heal at all. Unless they're addressed... Uh, they just go on and on and on. And so this woman calls Jesus the son of David. And in doing that, she's acknowledging that she knows that he's a Jew, a descendant of David. You're part of the lineage that slaughtered my people and enslaved my people, but I'm still coming to you for mercy. And so she cries out, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus then ignores her. He didn't answer her a word. And that already looks unloving. It looks rude. Um, in fact, that looks like the typical way a first century Jew who's got racist attitudes towards Canaanites would respond to a Canaanite asking for mercy. We don't talk to the likes of you. He just ignores her. 
The assumption here is that, that the, the uh, blessings of the Messiah are, are only reserved for, for Jews. He's the Jewish Messiah who's come for the Jews. And so everyone else is off limits. We don't talk to the likes of you. And then the disciples reflect the same attitude when they come to Jesus and say, make her go away. She keeps on calling out to you and she's bothering us. We've got nothing to give her. Make her go away. And then Jesus, now normally you would think Jesus would respond. First of all, he always responded compassionately to people when they asked for requests, but this time he ignores her. That's weird. And now, usually when the disciples said things like that, he would rebuke them. When they would try to make people go away, he would rebuke them because Jesus is open to everybody. Like when the, the children are trying to get to Jesus and, and the disciples are trying to shoo them off, Jesus rebukes them. No, let them come to me. And so you would expect Jesus to say, no, don't you know that I'm, I'm here for everybody? And so I'm not going to send her away. But he doesn't do that. He, 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 in fact, seems to reinforce their racist attitudes when he says... I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel. It's like he's saying, you're right. But then he, there's something funky going on here because he doesn't send her away. If he's only come for the lost sheep of Israel, you'd think, send her away. She's, tell her you've got nothing to give her and send her away. But he doesn't send her away. That's interesting. It's also funky because we just saw Jesus minister to this, this, this Roman centurion, and he's not Jewish. If he's only here for the lost sheep of Israel, how can he minister to the Roman centurion? In fact, he, throughout his ministry, Jesus is, is ministering to non-Jews. And then he's got all these teachings about how his, his, the kingdom that he's come to represent is going to draw people from the east and the west. And how the outsiders, people who thought you know, they were outside, are going to be on the inside. And those who thought they were on the inside are going to be on the outside. And, and his last words to his disciples are, are to go into all nations and make disciples of all nations. So clearly, Jesus doesn't believe he's sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Which raises the question, well, then why did he say to his disciples he's only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? I'll get to it. Be patient. Uh, hang in there. Well, I, I, I want to say one more thing before we start to unpack this. Um, see, despite this, this being ignored and being dissed, uh, this woman is persistent, and she comes and kneels before Jesus and, and just cries out for mercy. And, and, uh, and then Jesus does the worst thing. Uh, again, exemplifying, illustrating this typical first century Jewish racist attitude towards Canaanites when he says it's not right to take the bread and give it to the bread of children and give it to dogs. It's a harsh, harsh thing to say. And the woman then says, right, but, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. Throw me a crumb, she's saying. And that's when Jesus reverses everything he had done up to this point and now declares, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and her daughter's delivered. So what's happening here? Okay, what's going on here? Now here's you're going to have to really buckle down. I've got to give a little background. Um, much of what Jesus did, to understand this passage, you've got to realize that much of what Jesus did, uh, it was, it's what scholars sometimes refer to as prophetic theater. He is, he is acting out something that is either going to show how he fulfills something that's in the Old Testament, or he'll contrast what he's doing with what they found in the Old Testament. Prophetic theater. Uh, like, for example, the first message we gave in the series was about the temple cleansing. And, and there we saw that this wasn't a random tantrum that Jesus was throwing in the temple when he cleansed the temple. He was rather engaging in prophetic theater. And he was saying that he is, that he is Yahweh, who is prophesied in the Old Testament. It says Yahweh is going to come and cleanse the temple and bring judgment on the temple leaders. And so when Jesus is acting this out, he's, he's illustrating he is the fulfillment of all that. Another example would be the 12 apostles. Jesus chose 12. Why 12? Why not 11 or 13? 
And the answer is that Jesus is intentionally going back to the Old Testament, where the people of God were founded on the 12 tribes of Israel, which came from the 12 sons of Joseph. And so in doing this, Jesus is saying he's come to, 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 to build a new community, a new or renewed Israel. Okay, this is, he's, he's launching this kingdom. Uh, it's a new start for Israel and, and for the rest of the world. Prophetic theater. Most scholars argue that John the Baptist was engaged in prophetic theater when he went out to the River Jordan to baptize people and to call on them to repent. Why did he go to the River Jordan? Well, the River Jordan is really significant in the Old Testament. Uh, that is the river that the, the, the Israelites had to cross to get into the Promised Land. And so by going out to the River Jordan, what's going on is John is saying that he's calling people to repent. We've got to repent at the entrance point where the people of God went into the Promised Land. Uh, we've got to repent of what's gone down in Israel since we've entered into this Promised Land. Uh, we need a new beginning. We need a new entrance into the promises of God, the Promised Land of God. So he chooses the River Jordan. And there's a reason why, a prophetic theater reason why, Jesus goes out to Jordan to be baptized by him. Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist at the River Jordan. Uh, because, and you need to know this, the name Jesus is the, Hebrew, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua. They're the same word, just different language. They both mean, Yeshua, they both mean Yahweh saves. So already, Jesus' name positions him to be the, the, the new Joshua. So he goes out to the River Jordan, where the ancient Jews crossed over the river to get into the Promised Land, and he's the new Joshua. And then John the Baptist, I, and what he's doing there is saying that he's going to be the new leader, leading the people of God into the new Promised Land. And John the Baptist identifies this new Joshua as, oh, by the way, the title of the sermon is the new Joshua. There you go. Um, the, the, uh, uh, he identifies this new Joshua as the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what he's doing there is he's saying, this new leader is going to lead us into the promises of God and, and, and give us this new beginning and this new entrance into the promised land by taking away the sins of the world. And then Jesus is, is baptized. Uh, and here again, there's, there's parallels at work. When the, the Jews first went into the promised land, there's this miracle because the Jordan River was parted. And when Jesus then, this, the new Joshua, goes down into the water, an even greater miracle happens because the skies are parted. And whereas the first Joshua was a fallible human being, now they hear through the parted skies the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. The new Joshua is God's own presence on earth who's going to lead his people into a new beginning, a new entrance uh, in, into the promises of God. And whereas the, the first Joshua entered the promised land carrying a sword, and he's going to take those promises by virtue of violence, when Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? The people see the Spirit of God coming down on him in the form of a dove, which is the ancient symbol of peace. And so what Jesus is communicating here through prophetic theater is, in contrast to the first Joshua, who went forward in the promised land, wielding the sword and the power of the sword and the power of violence, this new Joshua is going to lead the people of God in the promises of God by the, the, the power of the Spirit and the power of peace, the power of nonviolence. And, and, and then... Uh, Whereas the first Joshua, because he's carrying the sword, the first thing he does when he gets in the promised land is he starts attacking cities and slaughtering every man, woman, child, baby, and animals. But the new Joshua, first thing he does when he is baptized in the River Jordan, when he crosses the River Jordan, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he preaches out of the book of Isaiah. 
And his message is, today, this is fulfilled in me. Good news is going to be preached to the poor. Uh, the brokenhearted will be healed. I give sight to the blind. I'm going to set the captives free. And it's not just for Israelites. It's going to be for all of those who, who the Israelites thought were outsiders and even were enemies. That's why his hometown wanted to, to stone him. And so in all these different ways, Jesus is engaging in prophetic theater to show how he's fulfilling the Old Testament, but also how his, his kingdom is contrasting with aspects of the Old Testament. And that, folks is what's going on here in Matthew 15. Um, Jesus is engaging in prophetic theater. He's making this point that, oh, by the way, today's message is brought to you by Starbucks Double Shot Energy. There you go. Um, well, you know, we're in America. You got to, commercialism. So, um, see, th there's this deep wound that happened in the past that's conditioning what's happening in the present. Explains why there's this divide between Jews and Canaanites, between Jesus and this woman. And Jesus is acting in a way that is going to reverse the message of the past. So he first ignores this woman. He, he first exposes the ugliness of this wound. He is intentionally highlighting the ugliness of this divide that goes back to the slaughtering that happened when the Jews first took over the promised land. And uh, um, so he, he incarnates it as it were. He ignores this woman. And then he says it's called only the lost sheep of Israel. And then it refers to the, 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 all the Canaanites and this woman as dogs. Um, now, why did he do that? A lot of folks would say, and they're right about this, that he was testing this woman's faith. And that's true. Because uh, that's illustrating that you need humility and faith to come to the Messiah and to enter into his promises. So that's true. But there's an even more profound thing going on, I think. Jesus is depicting all this precisely to expose the ugliness of all this. He is drawing attention to this past, this history uh, between the Jews and the Gentile, this racial tension between the Jews and the Gentile, and illustrating how ugly it is, precisely then to do what the first Joshua never did. As this woman illustrates her faith and he exposes this ugliness, then, whereas the first, first Joshua said, show them no mercy and slaughter them and enslave them, this Jesus reveals a God who is saying, I want to shower mercy on, on, on everybody. And so he shows her mercy, something that no Jew had ever done to a Canaanite before. Showers mercy upon her. And, and whereas the, the first Joshua thought he had to slaughter them because they're evil, even though Yahweh had told the children of Israel that they're no better than any other nation, they march into that, that land and they think, oh, that these people are, are evil. We've got to slaughter them. Uh, this new Joshua gets slaughtered on behalf, in order to deliver people from evil. And so in all these ways, through prophetic theater, Jesus is here uh, uh, reversing the message of the past in order to heal the wound that was created in the past to, to end the divide that is here in the present. Far from this passage illustrating Jesus having a racist attitude, it, it reveals his ingenious way of beginning to reverse all racist attitudes. And it shows, him, he's revealing that where the kingdom of God reigns, uh, the ugliness of racism is going to be being exposed, and the wound that causes all racism is going to begin to be healed, and people are going to begin to be set free from the bondage that is racism. It's the ingenuity and the genius of Jesus doing this. Now, this, this is significant for us, not just because it explains why Jesus, uh, you know, acted in such a racist way, uh, though that's an important thing to know. But it's important, I think, for us at this moment in history because, folks, if you haven't noticed, and I hope you have, um, racism in America is, is being emboldened and it's getting more brazen, coming out of the closet, and it's looking very, very ugly. In fact, acts of race, racist acts have been on a sharp increase over the last six months. Um, 
the climate has changed, and not just in America, but actually in, in all first world countries, there, the xenophobia, the disease of xenophobia is taking root. And, and this is a time then when God's people, um, we need to be walking billboards of the new Joshua, praise God. Uh, we need to be the, a people who are putting on display uh, the truth that, that um, you know, the, where, the, where God reigns, the ugliness of racism is going to be called out, named, and exposed. And where God reigns, the, the wounds that cause racism are going to be in the process of being healed. And where God reigns in a people's lives, uh, people will be getting set free from the diabolical, demonic disease that is racism. Because the truth is that in, in America, some terrible, terrible things happened in the past that continue to reverberate into the present, and racial wounds don't heal quickly, especially if people just try to ignore them. Terrible things happened in the past that reverberate into the present. And, and the, the current expressions of racism that we see are simply expressing the wounds that continue to fester. And we try to stuff them down and talk over them, ignore them for a while, but they're always popping up. The wound is still there. And so at a time like this, the church needs to manifest the one new humanity that Jesus died for. The church needs to manifest the truth that in God's design, in God's will, there are to be no walls that divide one group from another. And no group should ever be looked down as dogs. No group should ever be looked at as subservient, as less than in any, in any way. No group should be subjected to dehumanizing speech or actions against them. No group should be walked on by any other group that in God's eyes, all groups are equal to part of one humanity that created and actually the part of the beauty of the diversity of the humanity that God created. And our job is to be manifesting that. When you have life in Christ, we, this is our billboard. When you have life in Christ, you don't need to be in, involved in that, that infantile, disease, sick, pathetic attempt to try to get life, to try to get worth and significance by the particularities of your skin color or the particularities of your culture or the particularities, uh, particularities of your race. That when you've got life in Christ, the fullness of life that comes from what God thinks about you on the cross. When you've got that, you don't need to be grabbing after these pathetic little idols that people grab onto, but you're free, praise God. To, to, the, the, the hierarchies are subverted when people get life from God. All the ranking systems, all the judgments, all the prejudices get, get torn down. Whether it's about race or whether gender or class, they're all torn down. They're all subverted. Where, where people are getting life from Christ, violence and hatred are subverted. Uh, all the prejudices and judgments are subverted. All the hostilities are subverted, the walls are torn down, and the one new humanity is manifested. Now is the time for the church to be the church. Hallelujah. I mean, it's always time for the church to be the church, but on this race point, it's absolutely crucial. So Jesus is, is he, he's, he, he in the present, his present is representing the, 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 all of Israel. He's a descendant, the son of David, a descendant of, of Israel. So he's, he's representing Israel here. And this Canaanite woman is rep representing Canaan because... She's the descendants of the Canaanites. And what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing the ugliness of that past by illustrating it as a negative object lesson. And he's reversing the message of the past by showing mercy, whereas the land was taken by showing no mercy. And he's doing that in order to bring healing in the present. And folks, we are called to do the same. That's what we're called to do. Uh, I, I represent, I'm here as a few, as this may shock some of you, but I'm a... Uh, Descendant of white Europeans. Um, and see, who, who I am, we, we like, we're so individualistic. We, 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 we try to pretend like everyone was, was, was born in a vacuum, but we're not. I was born into a history. And, and that history is part of who I am. And I still benefit from it. Okay, I'm a white guy. Um, and I don't walk around feeling guilty about that. I don't think that 
Children are held responsible for what their ancestors did. I don't feel guilty about it, but I do feel responsible to do what I can do in the present to begin to heal the rift that was created by this massive wound that happened in the past. I think we all are. To do what I can do. And I don't go around apologizing every day, but there are times where it's appropriate to you call out that ugliness, name it, and declare your intentions to move away from it. Uh, and so I, I, as a descendant of white Europeans who conquered this nation, I want to say to the non-whites that have been and continue to be affected by that, that I am so sorry for what my ancestors did. Uh, we came here and we slaughtered, sometimes engaging in genocide against Native Americans and breaking almost every treaty we ever made with them, putting them on smaller and smaller reservations, and dehumanizing them in a multitude of different ways. And for that, I am deeply sorry. Uh, we imported millions of Africans on ships, treating them worse than cattle, many of them not surviving the ships across the ocean, and then enslaved them, auctioned them off like cattle, uh, separating husbands and wives and children and parents, breaking apart families, and, and then treating them in often absolutely subhuman ways, ways you would not ever treat an animal. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years, and for that, I am truly, truly sorry. And for all the groups that have been affected by the white conquest, I, as a representative of that, that, that lineage, I apologize. I'm sorry, and, and see, I'm just naming the ugliness of the past and now doing something that can begin to reverse that and bring healing to that. I had a lady last night come up to me, an African-American lady, and crying, just saying, I've never had a white person apologize to me before. And, and so there's a healing power in that. Now, if, if I imagine there's going to be some folks hearing this message, whether in the auditorium or on podcast, who, some white folks who are, are maybe thinking, well, there you go, bashing America again. There you go, bashing white people again. Uh, you know, we also did a lot of good. We did a lot of good. We, we, we brought, you know, the Christianity over, over here. And, and if it wasn't for that, they, these folks wouldn't be Christian right now. And, and we, we did just a lot of positive things. And, and, and sometimes that, the evil that we did was exaggerated. And, and you know, the, the black folks, were, they, they, helped, they helped sell those slaves. One tribe would, would capture another and sell them to us. So, you know, they, they have some responsibility. There. And the, the Native Americans, they were already slaughtering each other, you know. And if there's any kind of thinking like that, I just want to... In, in love, help you see that you are missing the point. You're completely missing the point. And I encourage you to explore why there would be that defensiveness. Um, maybe you're getting life from the fact that you're white. Why do you feel the need to protect anything? If your life is in Christ, you're free to just go ahead and let it be what it is. See, and, and it's not the good things that my ancestors did that caused wounds today. So, yeah, I, I don't feel the need to put a best possible spin on it. I, I don't want to make it worse than it was, but certainly don't want to make it better than it was. It is what it is. Uh, and, yeah, there's good, but it's the evil that was done that causes the rift, that causes the wounds, that causes the ongoing racism that festers to this day. So we've got to name that. That's what we name, and that's what we've got to remove ourselves from. And so saying I'm sorry is, is, is an appropriate starting point for all that. We've got to be a people who are about being real. I just heard on the TV yesterday this white guy, God bless him, he's naive, but he says, it's time to get over this now. It's time to move on. Well, it's easy for you to say. Uh, but um, the folks that are still negatively impacted by it, there's no moving on. They're in it. And, and uh, uh, you don't get to say when it's time to move on, you know? It's like... Yeah, the sex abuser telling the abused, okay, get over it now, all right? Uh, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Okay, 
I'll wrap it up with this. We have each, each, in each one of these messages looked at, we're trying to help people get in touch with the wounds that cause all violent thoughts, attitudes, actions, words, deeds in our life. And racism is one class of that. Racism is violence. Anything that violates the worth of another is violence. And so racism is among that. And just like the culture, there is a wound behind everything that's ugly in the culture. You look at these Nazi, you know, Nazi rallies, white supremes, you're looking at if, if folks that have been wounded somewhere along the lines. And, 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 and it reflects the, their woundedness and it reflects the culture's wound. Just like that's true of cultures, that's true of us individually. So we want to help. We're not just looking at ways that other people justify their violence by appealing to the ministry of Jesus. We want to look at violence in our own life and in our own heart because our goal has got to be to purge all violence out of our life. Thought, word, and deed. And it feels so good when you start doing that and get free of that. Uh, so we looked at, 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 at core needs that we have, what I call just getting life. Um, but you can look at core needs that are that life, things we hunger for and they're non-negotiable. Everybody needs worth and, 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 and significance. Uh, everybody needs to have a sense that they're free, that they're their own person, that they're not just a puppet. Everyone has, needs, has a longing to feel like they belong and, and they have a need to feel like, like they've got uh, security and a need that they've, they've got uh, uh, purpose. And these are core needs. So we looked at the first three of these last week. In the last five minutes here, I'm just going to quickly look at the, the, the next three. And this is, I, I, I'm just kind of describing what I'd like to be homework for us. Uh, to do some soul searching. The stuff we do in our, in our inner self is the most important stuff we do. Because if you don't change your inner world, you're not going to change your outer world. Everyone says, we gotta, let's change the world. Well, you've got to be the change you want to see in the world. And, and, and so we've got to learn how to be detectives of our heart and sniff out stuff. And the invite got in on that. So when we don't feel, when, when these needs are not met or when they're violated, it causes wounds that lead to the ugly stuff in our life, the violence, the racism, and all the rest. So the, the last three, uh, we dealt with the first three last week. The first of these three that we're going to deal with today is belonging. When you're, you have a non-negotiable need to feel like you're connected, uh, you're relationally connected to people, and when that need is not met or when it's violated, you feel rejected, unwanted. And as I'm going through these, be asking the question, uh, do you feel like this sometimes? Uh, does, does, does this land on you? Think of a time when you felt like this. And then I want you this week to invite Jesus in on that. Offering your imagination to, to the Spirit. Ask Jesus to come in and begin to reverse the message there. Uh, do you feel alone, isolated, disconnected, abandoned, ignored, invisible? And it's one thing that I think many people of color often feel in white-dominated America. In a room, you just feel ignored, it's overlooked. But whether it's that or something else, ask, when have you felt like this? When is that wound cross? Because see, we're called to be a people who make all people feel like they belong. That's part of the calling of the church. We're an us without a them. Uh, but we can't do that so long as we ourselves are wounded in that area. You can't give what you don't have. And so we have to invite Jesus in to begin to heal that non-negotiable need of ours and, um, and begin to address that. We all have a need to belong. We also all have a need to, to feel like th that justice has been done to us, to be treated fairly, that our worth has been acknowledged. And really, uh, since we know that Jesus died for everybody, we know that what it is to treat people according to their worth is to treat them as having unsurpassable worth. We act justly when we're ascribing unsurpassable worth to all people. And we ourselves have a need to be treated that way. And, but when that need is not met or when it's violated, well, then we feel like this. We feel betrayed or cheated, accused, violated. Have you ever felt disrespected, judged, humiliated, 
dissed, uh, overlooked, treated unfairly. Think about times when you have been treated like that. And again, this is something which for uh, many people of color in white-dominated America, this happens routinely. And so they can have deep scars about this. But we can all have, for various reasons, scars about this. We're called to be a people who are just. We live out justice, which means we live out this conviction that all people at all times have unsurpassable worth. But we can't do that to the degree that we ourselves are wounded in that area. You can't give what you don't have. So it's vitally important that we invite Jesus in on these areas of our life uh, and receive healing for it. And then everybody has a need to feel secure, to feel like, like uh, uh, their, their, their worth and their, their is an established thing. It's not going to be ripped from them. We need to feel emotionally secure and physically secure. And when that need is not met or when it's violated, we feel insecure or afraid, vulnerable, threatened, unstable, attacked, hopeless, anxious. Does that land with anybody? And think about a time when you felt that way. It's especially important to, to uh, think about times, maybe ask the question, is this part of your personality? Is this part of what feels like your identity? It's deeper than just an occasional thing. Is this kind of a pervasive thing? And if that's the case, I encourage you to ask the Spirit to begin to show you where that wound was first created. And usually it's something that happened in our upbringing. And let the Spirit bring that to you and see it. Offer your imagination up to Him to see. Revisit that. It may feel painful to do that. But then invite Jesus in on that to bring healing to that. Every ugly thing in our life is, is, comes out of a wounded thing in our life. And every beautiful thing comes out of a healing thing in our life. Let Jesus bring healing into your life, into these wounds. Um, we're to be a people who let all, communicate to everybody that they belong. How, and at this point in our history, folks, how important that is to especially do that across ethnic lines. As, as xenophobia raises ugly heads, can we go out of our way to, to be embracing, befriending people who look different than us, who maybe have an accent that's not ours, who, who, who maybe dress different, are a different race. Cross those lines to fight the xenophobia that's going on. And it doesn't take much. Um, it, it can be a simple thing. I'll end with this. By my house, there's, there's a gas station that's run by people that are all Middle Eastern. Uh, and they speak Arabic. I assume they're Muslim, but I don't know that. Um, but I just began to, I noticed that, you know, they always say to each other, Salaam Alaikum. And that's their way of saying hi, greetings. And so I just began to say, speak to them that way. Salaam Alaikum. Just did this morning when I got about my star, 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 Starbucks double shot. Salaam Alaikum. And he responds back, Malaikum Salaam. And, and, uh, and then I, you know, shokur, which is just thank you, shokur. Uh, and this last week, I've been doing that for a while. This last week, a guy just said, hey, I, I want to thank you for, for, for doing that. It makes me feel welcome here in America. At a time when I get a lot of suspicions that you're willing to speak, you know, just say hello in my language, it, that means something. And so the little things can be the things that really make all the difference in the world. Can we be a people who go out of our way to make people feel like they belong, make them feel just, like they have unsurpassable worth, and, and, and secure in that? We're not going to be a fickle with our love. We're going to give it, uh, regardless of what happens. And for us to do that, we've got to be in the process of being healed from racist things in our life and from all other violent things in our life to manifest the truth that God is beautiful. Amen? Put on display his beauty. Would you stand?
I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and uh, they'll be by the stairs here. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, it could be a wound in your life or it could be the argument you had with your husband last night. Uh, I, I, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. If you're here this morning and are not a follower of Jesus, a committed follower of Jesus, but you're interested in that, come up here, and these folks would love to talk to you what's, what, what's involved in that, starting this beautiful walk with God. As we leave this place, can we do it as a people who are committed to be in the process of being healed so that we can be used by God to, be, uh, to help heal others? Uh, to be a, the billboard of the new Joshua. If you are committed to that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors.